So why don't, we, why don't we do this? Let's stand for the reading of God's word, and then we'll commit these things to prayer. Matthew 22, 34 to the end. But when the Pharisees heard that he silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How then does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. (laughs) Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. And uh, yeah, Lord, thank you for the text that's before us. It it is a, a preeminent text, as Jesus even says. And I just pray that um, as we enter into this new year, uh, that we would elevate the supreme ethic to its rightful place, and by your grace, Lord, walk in it. And Lord, help us day by day to better understand uh, who Christ the Messiah is as it comes out in our passage. So thank you, Lord. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. Uh, I forgot to pray for Ron, so you can stay seated. But let's lift him up in prayer, okay? Father, we love you. Lord, we thank you for Ron and Jan, Lord. Um, just sweet people. Their sacrifice, their, their service, Lord. Their love for the body. Lord, we pray that you would be with Ron. Uh, Lord, that you would, we, we thank you that you, you spared his life. Thank you that he's improving. And we pray that um, he would be strengthened in his body. He'd be encouraged in his heart. And... Um, And Lord, as he loves to serve, I pray that you would give him strength to be restored to that ministry. Pray that you would be with Jan and that you would encourage her heart and um, yeah, give her hope, I pray, and help her time uh, with Ron in the hospital to be fruitful, Lord, as they fellowship with one another in your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, uh, what a great passage, I think, to... uh, to kind of kick off the new year. I'm, I'm, I'm not a big fan of coincidence, but I'm a big fan of God's timing. And uh, so I think it's, it's great. Uh, I don't typically uh, name my sermons, but um, I thought this was appropriate, talking about the commandments and the commander. And so here we are. So let's, let's look at it a little deeper, some of what's going on here. Uh, we remember from uh, last week that uh, the Pharisees had come to Jesus, you know, by way of their disciples to question about taxes, and uh, that didn't go so well for them. They were plotting against him. And then the same day, the Sadducees came, and they, they questioned him about uh, the resurrection, and they came in a very condescending and mocking tone, and uh, uh, they got the same fate as the Pharisees, which was public humiliation. 
And, um, and then we come to this. It says, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced, literally muzzled the Sadducees, they gathered together. Uh, I think probably when they uh, had witnessed all of that, they gathered together with a little bit of glee, right? We love it when our enemies get smashed. But uh, instead of them going, you know, maybe we should just stay away uh, and, and, and just see how this unravels, they decide, well, let's, let's, let's do this again. And uh, so there they are. They, they're gathering together. We know why they gather together. And so let's see what happens in their attempt to discredit Jesus. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, you remember, uh, previously they sent their disciples and with a well-fashioned plan. You remember that, right? They were going to trap Jesus in regard to taxes, hopefully make the Herodians mad that would get the Romans mad. Uh, and if he couldn't do that, then he would get his disciples mad, the, the people and all of that. But they sent their disciples, uh, and it, it didn't go well. But So this time what they do is they, they send out the big gun. They send Jesus one of their lawyers, and he was probably one of their, their top guys. Uh, I think they were at that point where we need to give him all that we got. Now, a lawyer <clears throat> at this time was uh, in Jewish society, uh, not Greek society, but a Jewish society, was a legal scholar, not, not an attorney, but an expert in interpreting and applying uh, all things concerning the law of Moses. Now, uh, we... We have no idea what it's like uh, to kind of live in a, what it was supposed to be, a theocracy. And so the law of Moses, uh, it, it governed all of Jewish life and society. It, it spoke into just about every single thing you can think of. You know, the civil government and, of course, religion, domestic life, military philosophy, dietary regulations, um, how are you to keep your house clean, uh, building codes, on and on and on. The law went, just everything. This lawyer was an expert in all of these things, to interpret the text and then how to apply it in Jewish life. Okay? And he comes to Jesus with this question pertaining to the law, which is the great commandment? That is, uh, the commandment, uh, the greatest in the law of Moses. Now, the word great... Uh, Typically, it's speaking of something of size, literally. But here it's talking about that which is weightiest, you know, what is, what's most important. In Mark's account of the same story, the lawyer in, in included, he says, which is the first commandment of all? So what is the first and the great commandment? The first means the foremost, that which has greatest priority. So we're talking about what's weightiest, what's most important, what has the greatest priority for humanity. Which are the commandments? Well, it is interesting that in the law of Moses, there, there are about 300 commandments. And then whenever you put a rabbi to something, uh, you double that at least. And so in rabbinical tradition, there's over 600 laws. Uh, that's a lot to choose from, but uh, we're just talking about the law of Moses itself. Uh, which one, which commandment is the most important for you and I? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Now, do you think 
that there was any hesitation in Jesus' response here. What's the great commandment? Boom, to love God. I think it came out immediately without any thought at all. Okay? And his response comes out of uh, you know, Deuteronomy 6 from a passage of scripture that has been called the Shema. You guys familiar with the Shema? It's the, the Jewish confession of faith is what the Shema is. Uh, in Mark's account of this, um, Jesus actually began with Shema, uh, which precedes the commandment that we see here. Here's the whole thing in Deuteronomy 6.4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Now, the first word there, hear, uh, the Hebrew word is Shema. And here it means to listen up. It means pay attention to what's about to be said, uh, what is going to be declared, and then what is going to be uh, commanded or demanded. Yeah. So verse 4 of the Declaration of Faith recognizes the identity of God and his unity. Now, the name of God, the covenant name of God is Yahweh. Uh, that's translated as Lord with all capitals, as you see it on the screen there. The word God comes from the Hebrew word Elohim, which interestingly enough is plural, but the statement declares that God is a unity, uh, that he's one. It's interesting. From the rest of scripture, beginning in Genesis 1, we see that God is a plurality in unity. Amen? We see that he's three in one. comes out all over the scriptures of plurality and unity. Here in this passage, following the, the declaration of God's identity and unity, there's the command, you shall. And that's where Jesus begins in uh, Matthew 22, 37. And then he quotes the passage from Deuteronomy 4, verse 5. He says, you shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is, he says, the first and the great commandment, foremost of all. So notice the language, if you would, carefully. Um, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's very important to the text. Okay? Now, the Shema of Deuteronomy includes the virtue of strength or might or power. Uh, Mark actually says that Jesus recorded that. Why Matthew left it out, I have no idea. So we're to love God with all our heart, all soul, all mind, all strength. And there's only one way to conclude here. If Jesus says that this is the greatest and foremost commandment, we ought to give it our greatest attention and our foremost effort. Amen? Otherwise, it's just silly to call him Lord, right? It's just silly, yeah. After all, the commandment does not say with some of your heart, with some of your mind. It's, it's all of everything, not some of each. Now he's just being demanding, yeah. It's all that we are. It, it, it's every one of our faculties fully engaged in loving the Lord. It's loving him with all that we are. Well, the question is, what all do you and I consist of? What is all that we are? What is all that we are? Can we be divided into heart, soul, mind, and strength? Okay, what a can of worms that has opened in church history. Just real quick, historically, there's, there's two views regarding... Um, what man can be divided into. Of course, in humanity, we always divide everything into camps. So there's the dichotomous and the trichotomous. Let me 
explain that. Dichotomists say that we consist of body and spirit, and that when, when the scriptures say spirit, soul, and mind, it's essentially redundant. Uh, they're really just talking about the same thing. Okay? So the dichotomist says that we consist of two things and two things only. One material property, one immaterial, and that's it. It's, it's spirit and body, or spirit, soul, mind as one thing, and body. The trichotomists, on the other hand, believe that man consists of one material and two immaterial properties, where body, soul, and spirit, okay? The soul being synonymous with the heart and mind, but the spirit being a distinct part of man. Now, of course, every position has its logic, every position has its proof texts in the Bible. Uh, neither one are completely convincing to me, okay? Uh, I actually lean more toward trichotomy, but all of my favorite theologians are dichotomous, which makes it more exciting that way. What are you guys? Are you guys dichotomous or trichotomous? Are we spirit, soul, and body, or are we body, spirit, soul, mind? All right, good enough. Yeah, I'm happy with that. Yeah. Regardless of all that we consist of, it's Jesus that said we should love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. Didn't he say that? Okay. Loving God with all of everything, I think, poses a great challenge for all of us. Now, it's easy to say it's, it's a challenge because we're all sinners, we're all broken, we're all depraved and, and all the rest. But I think there's another reason, and it's because we're all so different in our wiring, Okay. Uh, the interests we have, and the things that we excel at. Let me explain. So for example, if you're more cerebral, if you're more academic okay, by nature, you, you may struggle with you know, loving God with all your heart, that more experiential and emotional kind of side. You may struggle with spiritual intimacy or relating to God with what is not immediately connected to your brain your mind. Now, mind and brain are not to be confused with the same thing. The brain is part of your body, right? The mind is immaterial. You might say the, the brain is the physical vehicle by which the mind communicates and operates in the material world. Okay, yeah. You're cerebral, so some things struggle. You, you do find searching out, you know, the deep things of God by way of academic exercise. You're, you're enthralled with theology, the the finer points of doctrine, the doctrines of the faith, but for, for you to meditate on the goodness of God in silence or just bask in his presence or adore him in worship, it can be an exercise in what is awkward for you. How many of you guys are like that? Yeah, thanks for your honesty. <laughs> I'm with you. I know a couple more of you that aren't raising your hands. <laughs> Humility's a problem too. <laughs> but if you're more of an emotional person, we might say a person of the heart, it, it may be more difficult for you to engage with God more rationally. And I'm not saying that you're irrational. I'm just saying at, a, at, at more rationally or intellectually. You know, theology and apologetics, they don't come easy for you or they just don't interest you. You know, I exploring the intricacies of, of ordo salutis or synergism versus monergism or the, the hypostatic union. How many of you guys are resonating with that? Okay, I love that stuff. It keeps me up at night, okay? <laughs> they, they, they just fill me with wonder and amazement, okay? 
It's not everybody's thing. We, we gravitate to what comes easy for us because, you know, we're wired that way. That's, we relate to God best, or at least we think it's best, when we relate to him with how we are most naturally, you know, what our bent is, okay? But in the end, it all boils down to loving God the way we want to love him. It really does. And, you know, that approach never goes well in marriage. Love your spouse the way that you want to love them rather than the way that they want to be loved, right? My wife does not want to be loved like a man, okay? And I, trust me, I don't want to be loved like a woman, okay? It's just, it's not okay. And so love, real love, searches out the object of love and tries to figure out how they want to be loved. And God here is telling us exactly how he wants to be loved. He wants to be loved by all that we are. If you're to evaluate from the scriptures how God feels love from us, he tells us right here, many other places, loved by all that we are. And that's why he calls for all of it. And we must give it. Okay? You know, we all have a mind. It's true. We all have a heart. It, none of us are all mind and no heart, or all heart and no mind. Okay? Those who are academically wired cannot use that as, as, as a way out of pursuing God with their heart. How could you do that in obedience to the command, right? And those of us who are more emotional creatures cannot use that as an excuse to avoid the more academic things of God. God loves to be searched out. He loves it. He loves it. No one can say that they're exempt from pursuing God with their weaknesses just because it doesn't come easy for them. It's a cop-out. You're withholding something that belongs to God. It goes for me as well, okay? We must love God with all that we are. Now, I have found in my experience, though I struggle more with the emotional side, that the depth of my theology and doctrine deepen my wonderment of God when I don't just know those things about him and, and the things that he's done, but I worship him because of them. When I meditate on him and thank him for all of those realities. How many guys have read uh, the, the, uh, the Holiness of God from A.W. Tozer? Some of you older people, it used to be called the attributes of God. Yeah. You notice, if you've read uh, The Holiness of God from Tozer, and then you've read you know, Burkhoff or something, uh, or another theologian, you notice right away how devotional the attributes of God become for Tozer. These are occasions to, to bask in the creator of the universe, the one who condescends to humanity and then dies for humanity. He, it's just this exercise in worship because of the wonder of, of who God is. And it's, it's amazingly how, how brief the book is, but at what depth he goes into the person of God. I encourage you, everybody to read it. It's, it's great. It's a great example of how to worship God because of his attributes. He's omniscient. He knows everything. Tozer turns that an occasion to, to bow the knee and praise his, his creator. All the attributes of God. It's a great, it's a great read. It's a great exercise. Yeah, when, when the heart and the mind come together in their pursuit of God and love for him, that then begins to make a whole Christian. A whole Christian. Okay? Yeah. You know, oftentimes people come to this kind of a stagnant place when, in their walk with God. They stop kind of growing deeper. They sort of plateau uh, like athletes do. And I believe that much of it has to do with people only pursuing God with what comes more naturally and more easily for them. 
I believe that. They've avoided what requires more work from them in areas of weakness, and then they just never get to experience the benefits of diligence. I mean, if you are, if you're wired as more cerebral or intellectual, you don't have to apply great diligence to seek out theology and doctrine, right? But if you're more of a heart person and you're not so cerebral, it requires a lot of work. And I'll tell you what, there's some payoff in both directions. There's just great payoff. Hebrews 11.6 says, God is a rewarder to those who diligently seek him. Diligently seek him. A little more intimacy with God by way of the heart would expand the academic person into the realm of experience, where the heart is more engaged with God. It would take them out of the classroom and into the field where theories are proven. That's a good thing. Jeremiah says, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Jeremiah 23, or 29, 13. I think the cerebral person needs to hear that. And a little more theology by way of the mind would inform and guard the experiential person from the danger of error. You know, the uninformed are often prey to bad theology and doctrine, even bad practice, embracing things that God about God that are not true, and doing things that are unbiblical. Okay? Scripture commends acts of love and growing in it, but our love, Scripture says, must be guarded and guided by knowledge and discernment, Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. So until we might say orthodoxy and intimacy, heart and mind, intellect and experience are in harmony in the same person, there's not a whole Christian. They're, they're off balance. They're, we could say they're malnutrished. I, it's not a real word, but you know what I mean, right? And it's because God is not getting our all, because the whole person is not diligent at loving God we plateau in our spiritual growth. It's because our love of God is wanting. He's not receiving what he's worthy of. We're cheating him. And then we reap the consequences for it. There's a few athletes in this room. How many of you athletes have plateaued in your athletic pursuits? You've gotten to a certain place, you know, power lifters, you know, they're always, it's always the next thing. But guys plateau and they got to do something because if they can't lift more, they'll die. They got to change things up. They got to pursue a different route. Runners, all kinds of athletes, they, they end up cross training so that they can break the plateau and move on. I think Christians need to do a little cross training, you know, from heart matters to intellectual and vice versa. Some of us need more theology and doctrine to inform the mind more accurately and deeply. Others need more intimacy with God and worship and devotion. Need some cross training. Now, you may or may not know, uh, you know where you're strong or where you're weak, but I think in order to find out, because I know God wants you to know, you should cry out to him. You should do some you know, self-examining. I would say let other people, you know, godly people examine you as well and kind of help identify where you know, you're withholding from God. And don't let your strengths eclipse your weaknesses. Bring them into the light so that they can be strengthened, okay? Don't let anything atrophy in your spiritual life. So loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, Jesus says this is the weightiest priority for man. So we have a moral obligation to do that. We need to repent, and we need to be diligent to love God with all that we've neglected to give him. He deserves it. He's purchased us. 
You know, the good thing about loving God is it's eternally reciprocal. Amen? It's great. Go chase it down. Yeah, some of you, I might say, need to spend more time in Psalms to learn how to communicate to God and express yourself to him. I guarantee whatever your mood is or will be, David went to God that way. Every, everything. Yep. Sometimes I read the Psalms, especially the precatory Psalms, and I'm shocked by the things that David says. And I go, but you know, that right there is what he is actually going through. It's what he's feeling. Yeah. And others in here need to give more of their time to the book of Romans to better inform their minds about the great doctrines of the faith that they might see clearly what God has done for us and what he's doing in us. Amen? We could be more well-rounded. We could be whole Christians. So loving God with all that we are, this is the first and great commandment. Jesus says the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as your Self. Now, the statement means to love others as you already love yourself. I don't know how we miss that uh, in interpretation, but loving others as you already love yourself. Now, Scripture always assumes that man loves himself and that the love of self is a problem. It's a problem. For example, tell me if you think this looks like a problem. But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come for, because men will be lovers of themselves. According to the Holy Spirit, perilous times are on the horizon for humanity because men will be lovers, women, that's generic, will be lovers of themselves. Self-love brings perilous times, not just to society, but to the individual. Okay? This has never been so obvious until the advent of social media. Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and whatever other platform there is to showcase our narcissism, okay? Man is incessantly consumed with himself, wanting attention, affirmation, accolades. Self is just a vicious vacuum of me, myself, and I. Every motive is contaminated with me, with me. Man is infatuated with himself, so much so that if he were to take the love that he has for himself and to bestow it on his neighbor, he would fulfill all the demands of God's law regarding his fellow man. It's inverted love. That's the problem. Now, this flies in the face of you know, the self-love movement. My generation definitely came out of that mess. Okay? Really picked up in its momentum in the 80s. Okay? Now, I don't mean to, to rant here, but I, I want to say it as, as a warning. Okay? We all believe that ideas have consequences, right? Hitler had some ideas. They had serious consequences. And our culture of self today is a product of the self-love and esteem movement that started yesterday. Our culture is a mess, a mess. The perilous times are upon us because we've cultivated this infatuation with self, of adoring self. It's, it's crazy, it's crazy. It was so influential and was communicated so effectively, I think even in, intimidatingly, that in order to accommodate the doctrine, Christian academics changed the interpretation of Scripture to make room for it. They did. Okay? The same thing happened with the influence of Darwinian evolution. It was so widely accepted as science that Christian thinkers made a way for it in Genesis. And the strange thing is, is Darwinian evolution is no longer embraced by modern evolutionists. 
Evolution is, but not the Darwinian model, okay? But Christian thinkers continue to be intimidated by it, make allowances for it. Their church now is busy, intimidated by the, the gay community, and now we have gay theology. Now it's, it's DEI, okay? Everything, everything. It's, the church is always falling under this intimidation of the culture to change the scriptures to accommodate that. It's a deadly game. So back to the influence of the self-love movement, some Christian psychologists squeeze this self-love doctrine between these two commandments in our text, making self-love the second commandment and the love of others the third. Why? Well, because we discovered that you can't love others until you love yourself. At least, that was how the logic went. So as you learn to love yourself, you can love others. By the love of self, humanity can be actualized to their highest potential. But see, logically speaking, if you can't love others until you love yourself, you can't love God until you love yourself, which makes the love of self the supreme commandment. But no one was willing to be that blasphemous, even though it's the logical end of that humanistic philosophy. Okay? Theologically speaking, what is there to love about something that is so corrupted by sin? What's to be so admired? What's to be so esteemed? Through these ideas, we've made man so lovable that there's nothing left for God to redeem. It's crazy. If we only knew the half of what we really are and the depth of our own depravity and rebellion against God, it wouldn't be self-love that we gravitated to. It would be self-loathing. You know, by God's own declaration, he said that Job was a righteous man. Look at what Job said. He says, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. You know, Job spent the majority of the book defending his righteousness. And he was a righteous man. God said that. But when he saw himself in the light of God's holiness, he didn't see how good he was, how lovable he was, but how loathsome he was. When he saw himself in truth, he didn't see someone he was motivated to esteem, but a sinner to be despised, and it drove him where? To repentance. I think that's a virtue. That's not the outcome that we were told would come from any kind of self-loathing, right? Yeah. And it wasn't until Job came to this acknowledgement and repentance that God restored him. God was withholding it until then. And then he restored Job. You know, Job would have objected to the self-love philosophy for the humanistic doctrine that it is. It perpetuates pride. It fosters the, the narcissist in all of us, which only distances us from God and fulfilling his commands. And if you want to have a proper view of self, study the law of God and the holiness of God. You know, people often say they're a wretch. They really don't know the half of it, okay? They don't know how bad they are. How many of you guys have been shocked by thoughts that have come to your mind. You shouldn't be. <laughs> we shouldn't be as Christians. Okay? You know, God never tells us to love ourselves, to lift ourselves out of our badness, or to affirm ourselves, to redirect ourselves, or to esteem ourselves, to make us feel better about ourselves. What he does is he calls us to himself to acknowledge our badness and rebellion and to repent of it, and then to trust him to redeem us and then to fashion us into the image of his son, who we ought to love, who we ought to worship, and who we ought to adore. God calls us to come to terms 
with what we really are, what we're really like at the core. Here's God's psychological evaluation of what we are at the core. If you don't like it, you can argue with him. I'll give you his email. (laughs) Okay, Devin, since we're giving out emails today. The heart is deceitful above just a few things. All things, and it's desperately wicked. Who can know it? Yeah. It doesn't surprise me that a humanistic philosophy would try and diminish biblical doctrine of sin and elevate the doctrine of self-love. If man is not so sinful, but rather lovable, that he's not in need of forgiveness and redemption, he doesn't actually need God. He just needs to love himself for who he is, and things will all come together for him. He will be on his way to becoming all he can be for his own glory. For his is the power and the kingdom and the glory forever. That's the humanistic manifesto. Well, that doesn't concur with reality or our personal experience, and it directly contradicts what God has observed about us and and declared in his word. If man didn't love himself, Jesus wouldn't command us to love our neighbors as we already love ourselves. Well, let's satisfy all the demands of God's law by loving others with the love that we have for ourselves. Guys, if you take the love that you have for yourself and bestow it on someone else, it's enough love to fulfill all of God's law. There is no lack of love in that. There's not. Either Jesus is misinformed about man or man is misinformed about man. I think it's best rather to trust Jesus' diagnosis of my heart and let him prescribe what is best. Yeah? His diagnosis is that I'm dis- my heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately wicked. His remedy was to die for my sinful soul and wash me of my guilt. And his prescription is for me to love God above all, with all that I am, and then to love my neighbor as I already love myself. Amen? So who's my neighbor? Someone asked Jesus that question. You remember that? So who's my neighbor? And he responded with the parable of the good Samaritan to demonstrate that your neighbor isn't the one that you want to be your neighbor, but the one that you don't want to be your neighbor. And that you should take the love that you have for yourself and you should bestow it on that person. Your neighbor is not the person who is convenient for you. Just as the man who was robbed and beaten and left for dead on the side of the road was not convenient for the Samaritan. Your neighbor is not the one who agrees with you religiously. Just as the Samaritan did not agree with the theology of the victim lying on the side of the road. Your neighbor is not the one who loves you. Your neighbor is not the one who agrees with you politically. Your neighbor is not the one who requires no sacrifice. Your neighbor is not the one who is sexually oriented as you are. Your neighbor is not the one you get along with. Now, of course, everyone everywhere is our neighbor. But Jesus' point is that we cannot be selective about who is and who is not our neighbor. What would happen if we got to choose our neighbor? I know who you would choose. (laughs) We would choose selfishly. The one that makes it easier on us to love them as we love ourselves. It's just not how Jesus rolled. It's not how he instructs us. So how does he conclude his answer to this lawyer? He says, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Interesting word, hang. Jesus said this another way in Matthew 7. He said, therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, of course, this is another way of of saying, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. Do to others what you want them to do to you. That's really the 
the practical way of loving them with the love we have for ourselves. But here, Jesus says that this is the law and the prophets. This is. In Romans 13, 9, Paul says that all the commandments are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he concludes in verse 10 that love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And he says it again in Galatians chapter 5, verse 4. James says that if you fulfill the royal law by love, he says, I'm sorry, he says you fulfill the royal law by loving your neighbor as yourself. It's interesting. If you sum that up, the law and the prophets hang on loving God and neighbor. And loving God and neighbor is the essence of the law and the prophets. And then all the commandments are summed up by loving God and neighbor. And loving God and neighbor fulfill the law. Wow. No wonder there is no other commandment greater than these. All of God's demands on humanity are fulfilled in loving God and loving neighbors as self. It's absolutely supreme. It's consistent perfectly with God's character. And man is most like God then when he loves, when he loves. This is it. I once had someone come to our church, complain about our church, that we're into all that baby talk and baby food of loving God and loving others. He didn't last long. He went to some mature church. (laughs) Let's go to the next section. (coughs) Excuse me. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. So I love this. Finally, Jesus initiates conversation with these guys and puts them in the hot seat. I think he should have done it a long time ago more often but he knows what's best. Now, it was common knowledge that the Messiah would come out of the lineage of David. And he did, it's true. But there's more to it, and that's what Jesus is trying to get at here with these Pharisees. He said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? This is great. And he probably didn't take all the time plotting as they did to come up with this one. It's so great. So by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David wrote these words back in Psalm 110, verse 1. And the Pharisees, as Jesus knows, they recognize that passage as a reference to Messiah. They recognize that. It's in their literature. In Psalm 110.1, David is saying that the Lord was speaking to his Lord. The Lord said to my Lord. The Hebrew text says that Yahweh was speaking to Adon, because you see Lord in both. But one is all caps, the other was capital L. So the first one is Yahweh, the covenant name of God. The other one is Adon. So Yahweh was speaking to David's superior, David's Lord and master. That begs for an interesting question. Who was David's superior other than God himself? You see, David, he reigned supreme over his empire. He called no man Lord. And in that culture especially, you know, a patriarchal culture, a father never referred to his own son as Lord. No, not ever. Okay? If the Messiah was a descendant of David, and Adon is a reference to Messiah, whom David called Lord, how can the Messiah be the son of David and David's Lord? 
Good question, Jesus. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare question him any more. You know, it's interesting. The answer to the question that Jesus has posed comes from multiple places in the Old Testament, as well as the combination of many others. But I think the Apostle Paul, he he puts it most succinctly and clearly in Romans chapter 1. Now, he says that the gospel of God was promised in the Old Testament, and it was concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. You see, according to the flesh, that is, Jesus' human nature, he's the son of God, or son of David, according to the flesh as a man. But according to the spirit, that is Jesus' divine nature, he's the son of God. So he can be David's son because according to the flesh, he was born into this world through the lineage of David. But David called him Lord in Psalm 10 because from all eternity, Jesus is God Almighty. Christ the Messiah is both the root and offspring of David. Revelation 22 verse 16. The statement means Jesus created David And then he came into the world through David. He created the vessel by which he would enter into the world of man. It's crazy. So Jesus is both son of David and he's Lord of David. He's son of man and son of God. He's not a demigod, but fully God and fully man. Great is the mystery of godliness, Paul says, for God was manifest in the flesh. So Jesus' question from Psalm 110 is so challenged their theology of Messiah, they can't, they can't respond at all. And it ended all debate with Jesus, okay? They didn't dare raise another challenge to him. But this, this last question that Jesus poses, it had to be answered. Psalm 110 is so powerful. Who indeed is this Adon who was to rule over his enemies? Interestingly enough, the answer to this last question was actually answered by Jesus in one of his first conversations with the Pharisees in Mark chapter 2, verse 1. I love it. Jesus told the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees began to reason in their hearts, Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus said, But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. You see, the Son of Man was also a well-known title for Messiah. And in that conversation, he, he took that title for himself, and then he declared that he had the authority to forgive sins. The Pharisees were correct. Only God can forgive sins. And there he was, standing before them in the flesh, forgiving the sins of men. It's, it's amazing. David referred to the Messiah as Lord because the Messiah would be God in the flesh. How interesting that Jesus gave the answer to his last question to the Pharisees in his first encounter with them. Who can do that anyway? Maybe God in the flesh. And so seeing that Jesus is the Messiah, he's the Lord, he has the authority to forgive sins, and he has the authority to prescribe for us the supreme ethic, which is to love God with all that we are and to love our neighbor as ourselves. As I said, I'm not a fan of consequence, but I am a fan of God's timing. He 
He's given us this text at the beginning of the new year. Let us commit to the supreme ethic for the glory of God and the good of those around us. Amen? Go ahead and stand up and we'll pray. Father, we love you. Lord, I do believe it's true that that many of us in the room, including myself, if we are not plateaued, we have and we will. Lord, we need your grace to to put our finger on, on where we're weak in our love for you, what has been withheld, what has been neglected. So Lord, I pray that by your grace, you would inform us, you would teach us, Lord, and, and then you would energize us to give to you all that you're worthy of. Lord, grant us grace to not pick and choose our neighbors, but to look upon all men created in the image of God and to love them as we love ourselves. And Lord, as always, especially as the day approaches, help us to recognize your lordship. You're the one that said that if you love me, you'll obey me. So Lord, help our confession to meet with our conduct, Lord, to be consistent. So Lord, thank you. Be with us. Grant us grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Lord bless you. Love you. Have a good week.